Today's episode is brought to you by Brighter Vision Web Solution. They build beautiful websites for therapists. And if you're a therapist, stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special offer. Today's conversation is with a member of our Practice of Being Seen community for therapists. Speaking of the Practice of Being Seen, we want to make sure you know about the retreat we have coming up this August. It's for 13 therapist healers who want to join us in the gorgeous Catskill Mountains of New York. We're calling it Revision. Explore your stories, shape your future. It's a time to really dig deep and root in to who you are and what you have to share with the world. For more, visit us at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. And now, the show. The Practice of Being Seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships, and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is The Practice of Being Seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today we have Mercedes Samudio with us. She's an LCSW and a parent coach who helps parents and children communicate with each other, manage emotional trauma, navigate social media and technology together, and develop healthy parent-child relationships. Mercedes started the End Parent Shaming hashtag. It's a movement, really. And she coined the term shame-proof parenting. She's using both to bring awareness to, the, to ending parent shame. Mercedes is a leading parenting expert and has an amazing following on social media that allows her to reach the hearts of thousands of parents who feel heard and seen on their parenting journey because of Mercedes' work. She's been featured on the Huffington Post, U.S. News and World Report, Women's Day, and CBS LA. Welcome, Mercedes. Welcome. It's good to have you. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Hmm. We're so glad you're here. (laughs) You know, Mercedes and I have known each other for, what, over two years now? Yes. Yeah. And the very first time I met you, we were on our way to a conference and I was hitching a ride with you. And I remember that car ride so vividly because we were already talking in that moment. And my first like real life impression of you was already about this end parent shaming stuff. And it didn't even have that name yet, but that's what it was already about. Do you remember that ride? I do. I do remember it very vividly. I remember being excited to meet you for the first time because we had been talking online and I had been able to like talk to you about so many other things. And I do remember as we were talking about my mission and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go, you opened up and you're like, I have a story for you. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And it was really interesting to know that, like you said, the in-parent shaming hashtag hadn't been coined or formulated yet, but it was really interesting to know that what I was doing online and what I was talking about was resonating with others. I think that's hard sometimes to recognize, but when Mm -hmm. you have somebody say, oh yes, you're the the parent shaming person, you're this person, and then they want to share their stories with you. It's like, oh, okay, this is not just me in my head with these ideas. Other people resonate with this. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit and just let them know what this end parent shaming campaign is all about? Yeah, it is a huge kind of idea because one of the the things that I have learned in all of my work with parents 
is that every parent who comes to me has never come to me and said, Mercedes, I feel great about what I'm doing with my children. I feel like I'm, I've got it figured out. I feel like I'm doing it right. Most of my parents come to me saying, ah, what's happening? And I'm failing and I'm doing it all wrong. And when I begin to peel back the layers of what that means to them, what, how they kind of conceptualize that idea of I'm failing my children, I would say about 75% of the time, it's not what they really think or even what their children are telling them. It's what others are telling them, other parents, schools, other organizations, other people in the world are saying, your kid needs more of this. You're not doing enough of this. And they're taking all of that on into their parenting identity. And what the in-parent shaming campaign is, is really this idea to become aware of how you judge parents in the world without knowing their full story, without really taking the time to say, what is going on for you and how can I help? You know what I pick out of that is the phrase parenting identity, because, you know, I'm a mother of two. I think a lot about identity. Have I necessarily put together that I have a parenting identity and that my peers at the bus stop do as well? No. Thank you for that phrase. Can you bring us a little deeper into that? Sure. Yeah. So it's interesting because as a clinician, right, as a LCSW, I learned so much about all these wonderful developmental practices for, you know, social development, emotional development, even childhood development. But there are no, there's no kind of theory or theoretical framework for how a parent becomes a parent, how they go from being a single human or a human in a relationship to now having this relationship with a child. And I think it's really important that we give a parent the space to find that identity. I think that's where a lot of the shaming comes from because no one really knows what a parent is supposed to look like. No one really has any, doesn't have a measuring stick and we don't really have a framework to say, oh, a parent is supposed to be feeling like this at this time. Okay, they're supposed to be thinking this. Whereas if you go with child development, you're like, oh, two-year-olds, yes, that's where they're supposed to be. Oh, 10-year-olds, okay, that's where they're supposed to be. And so we have more empathy for them. But what's a parent of a, t- of a two-year-old or a parent of a 10-year-old? Right, right. What are they supposed to be feeling, right? So if a parent of a two-year-old is like, ah, I wish I hadn't done this, you know, is that appropriate for them at that time? Most of us know that just from, you know, being around parents and being around kids. We're like, yeah, that makes sense. But there are always those outliers, those people who really don't understand it because there's no framework for it. And as you know, you guys probably know, as people who deal with healers, when there's not a framework, there's a lot of space for uh, misinformation and communication errors when there's no framework to go back to. Mm-hmm. Oh. I'm, I, we're, Marisa and I are sitting here smiling at each other. Maybe we should give a little bit of a backstory. <laughs> we, we've recently interviewed a few other, other transformation professionals and The idea behind needing this framework, this thing that holds you, has been a theme that's been showing up in interview after interview after interview. And it's both about understanding your own identity and how to hold yourself, but how to also offer a helpful, true, authentic definition for those around you. Because if you don't create one for yourself, it may be in marketing, you might call it a label or your, uh, you know, your marketing message. But in terms of as an individual, if you don't stand in, this is who I am as a parent, then everybody else around you makes it up and they're probably going to get it wrong. And they tell you all the things that you should do. Yes. That's a very huge piece of the shaming piece of it, which I think is, you know, every parent is hoping 
to raise a child who is going to be an uh, active and healthy participant of the world. And, you know, no one really tells you how to do that. But you do have a lot of people telling you what you're doing wrong. You know, I deal with mostly kids who are a school age and tween age. And all of my parents, you know, as they talk to me about how they identify their child, how they respond to their child, it's usually from what other people in the community and what other people in the world are saying. So they're saying, your kid can't sit down, your kid needs medication. The parent is thinking, oh my God, my kid, something's wrong with them. And I think that shame really disconnects the parent from really connecting to who they have in their house versus what their vision was of their child or versus what other people feel their child should be at a certain point. You know, I just want to tie a couple ideas together that piggyback off of that, but also what we were saying at the beginning, when you and Rebecca connected over, Rebecca wanted to tell you a story about <laughs> this is the time that she's going, I right. felt shamed. <laughs> um, and you said, you know, I know you have so many other people share those kind of stories with you. So knowing we're all walking around with our own personal stories. And then earlier you were talking about, you know, what is a parent supposed to look like? And that got me thinking, you know, who do we have as the archetypes, as the characters of this is what a parent looks like and this is what a good parent looks like. And I find myself going back to like 60s sitcoms I never watched. And I was born in 1979. Like we have these outmoded kind of public stories that don't hold our individual experiences. And, you know, that just seems to me must, must be a really important part of the work is, is defining who you are as a parent and then looking around the social stories around you, like in pop culture even. Yeah. And I would say even go a little bit further, which is I think where our parenting, where, where, like when we're looking at, okay, what is a parent supposed to be doing? I think it changes with what's going on in our world society-wise. So I would say as someone who was born in the 80s, over the past like three decades, there's been this change of a parent's responsibility. So before, when I was growing up, parents were able to kind of have a village, right? And parents were like, well, if you're playing in the community, anyone in the community who was an adult and a respected figure could tell you what to do. And over, I would say the past 30 years, that's changed so much. There is no more that community. It's always, you know, just me and my family and whoever you know, kind of becomes part of my, my family unit, but it's usually just me and my family. So when kids are out in the, the street or out in the community, no one's able to say, hey, something's wrong with your kid. Because again, there is this idea that, you know, I need to be defensive. I need to make sure that my kids are okay. I don't have to worry about your kids. You figure out your own kids. And I don't think that's something that parents necessarily did. I think that's something that society began to do at when that shame began to come up, that everyone began to isolate and hide more because I don't want to be shamed. I don't want anyone in the community to tell me about my child because I don't want anyone in the community to know where my errors are or my flaws are in my parenting. Is that kind of a chicken and the egg thing in terms of what happened first, the shame or the community erosion? I, you know, if I was going to posit it, I would definitely say yes. And I would say it might even come from, and this is just me hypothesizing and really just coming from my experience of working with families over the past 10 years, I'd say with the emergence of, of research that talks to us about how childhood trauma follows us into our adult lives, I think that has really kind of given a lot of foundation to shame, where you have this research that's kind of validating how to care for children, but I feel like people have kind of taken it and mutated it into this idea of what parents should be doing so they don't mess up their kids so we don't have a messed up society. And I feel like people have taken it to that extreme as opposed to using that research to say, oh, 
okay, this is really tough raising children. There's so much that we need to be doing when a child is young that maybe we need to be embracing parents so they can have more support so they can make sure that they have that space for these children. Instead of us taking the research and thinking that, we took the research and thought, oh my God, parents are screwing up everybody. Ah, you know, and I feel like that's kind of where that shame may have started if I was going to hypothesize, you know, what happened there. Talk about the law of unintended consequences. Right. And that human tendency to judge suddenly got a brand new stage to stand on. Right. It's got a lot of research. They ha- and now people cite all types of research. You know, one of the things that people cite with me is the ACEs study, the Adverse mm. Childhood Experiences study. And so people say, see Mercedes, this is why you got to shame parents. This is why you got to let them know. And I say, actually, let's look at the ACEs as the people who are raising children now they probably had adverse childhood experiences that they are carrying into their parenting identity. So if we're shaming them, really what we're doing is we're re-victimizing them. We're not helping them heal, which is not helping them raise their children in a a more secure way. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, I'd like to pause this just for a second, because obviously the word shame is coming up so many times in this conversation. And I think we have a shared idea of what that word means. But I'd love to have you kind of bring us into a deep dive, Mercedes, because we use that word a lot in our culture. Brene Brown has given us such a gift and and really starting to deconstruct it. But help bring our listeners in with you to that term. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Brene Brown, and I really do want to give her credit for even kind of giving me the foundation for what does that look like as, in your parenting identity? So for me, I feel like the shame and I'll, I'll keep it within the wheelhouse of parenting identity. What that looks like is people who are trying to figure out who they are, what they're doing, where they are in their parenting identity and feeling this kind of external pressure to fit in boxes or to fit in labels that make them look like whatever is good at the moment. And I feel like that's where the shame comes from in in my definition is it's not so much that the parent themselves is saying, this is what I should be doing. This is where I should be. It's that society has set a bar of some sort. You know, you need to be a X parent or a Y parent, or these are the, you know, parenting strategies that work today, or the, this is the research that tells you how not to raise a horrible child. And so the parent then tries to fit themselves into that box without knowing who they are internally without knowing, again, how they have come into their parenting identity. They're just trying to fit into what the quote unquote right way is to do. And I think that's where the shame comes from. I was recently at a workshop with uh, Terry Real, And one of the things that he said was that shame and grandiosity share the same energy. And that's that they're both two sides of contempt where, so that the contempt is in grandiosity, it's directed outwardly, it's directed at other people, but in shame, it's directed at the self. Wow. I think that's a really great kind of conceptualization of it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't have anything to add there. I'm like, that, that works really well, I think. (laughs) And contempt is such a big, heavy word to hold. We don't Mm. use that word all that often in conversation yeah, because it kind of stops you in your tracks, right? Well, it breaks down relationships. So whether we're talking about a marital relationship or we're talking about a parent-child relationship or a relationship between a parent and their own identity or a parent and society, Mm -hmm. it breaks down a relationship. Mm -hmm. 
Right. right? And it has so, such a negative connotation, I think, when we hear contempt. And I think that's what happens when we hear words like shame, contempt, and things like that. I think it has such a negative connotation that people tend to do what you say. They tend to disconnect from it mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, okay, how is this showing up for me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's coming up for me right now is this old little nursery rhyme that I grew up with, with my, my grandparents. They, they would sing it to me in, in Yiddish or, or German or Polish. I don't even know which language they were singing it in. Maybe some of our listeners will. But it was just like whenever I would do something wrong or somebody would do something wrong or whatever, they would sing Shisha Shamedi Alaloy Tzendi, which roughly translated to something like, shame on you, the whole world's watching. Mm. So interesting. The one word that one can recognize in there is shame. Is shame. And I wonder, <laughs> it may not even be, it may not be the cognate. That's why I just like, oh, wow, look at that. There it is. Right. Yeah. Shame like, on t- you. Talk about internalizing world. shame. Shame on you. The whole world's watching. The whole world is watching. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of parents feel that that's, that's it. Like, especially once your kids become school age, I think until then you can kind of hide out if you will, and and kind of stay within your, your own bubble. But I think once your kids go to school and then you start to interact with other parents, your kids start to be around other kids and you start to be around other people who is, who are now watching you and your family. I think that, yeah, the whole world is watching now. And that's how it can feel. Even though it's just your school or your community that's watching, it can really feel like, oh my God, I'm on display here. I'm being seen. Yes. And often there's no way to fit in the right way, right? Because as you were kind of talking before and defining parent shaming for us, I was thinking of, it was an article or a Facebook post I read somewhere about how appalled someone was that a mother shushed or soothed, depending on your language, <laughs> her toddler in the checkout line by whipping an iPad out of her purse. Mm. And mm. so the mother was probably choosing between, am I going to be here for my kid to melt down that he wants M&Ms and I'm saying no, or am I going to, okay, maintain the quiet and the peace and soothe him with what I know works. Mm-hmm. And she was probably terrified of being shamed for a tantruming toddler. And instead, she ends up getting shamed for using the digital pacifier. Right. right. And talk about, I mean, damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Right. Right. Exactly. And that's where I think, you know, again, going back to society and us not really having a framework to understand what parenting looks like and how it looks as society changes. So I would say maybe like 10 years ago, yes, that would be crazy to do that because there were so many other ways to work with our children. But I think now we live in a world where everyone's kind of tapped into tech. I mean, I find myself getting on my phone when I'm in line waiting for anything, you know, the the two seconds I have to wait for anything, I pull out my phone. And so I think when we get mad at our parents or we judge our parents for that stuff. We're ignoring the fact that parents are trying to figure out who they are, what's best for them and their family in a society that's really plugged in, you know, so they're finding ways to just the same way a pacifier used to work or parents used to bring babies blankets, you know, out with them. Our parents used to bring a whole backpack worth of snacks with them. Parents now are like, if I have my snacks and my kid's iPad, I'm doing good. Is that bad? Who knows? We won't know until, you know, 50 years from now when we are looking different. But I think in the moment we really have to look at, okay, how has society changed and what resources are parents able to use now to kind of manage their child's behavior in the world, as opposed to just shaming them and judging them, really stepping back and saying, well, if this kid is not tantruming, what's wrong here? I'm noticing my own reactions to 
to this conversation right now, and I'm noticing that I'm, I'm very quickly going into a place that I'm then noticing and saying like, oh, wait, hold on. We're having a conversation about shaming parents. Don't go there yet. Because in my head, I'm going to the place where, well, technology is not the answer. And like, it's not good that I'm on my phone all the time. Like, I'm very quickly going right there. And I think I had a very similar reaction. But then I wonder if we can invite ourselves to take that step back to Mercedes' concept of the village. What is it that a mom has to lug a toddler to an incredibly long grocery store trip? Wouldn't it have been better if kiddo could stay home with grandma or auntie or some member of the village rather than bring a child into a place full of brutal temptation with so many beautiful wrappers and toys. And, and that mom even has to go to a grocery store. I mean, like she's not growing the stuff in her backyard anymore. <laughs> right. Or, or taking out, you know, walking down to the local market and picking up just enough for dinner for that evening. Apart, and that you know. the kid isn't going hunting with dad. Like we could, I mean, we could step it all the way back. We can go all the way back. So back in Eden, what was parent shaming like? <laughs> right. There's a snake walking around telling them, hey, you're doing it wrong. You know, Adam and Eve had no models. Exactly. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> exactly. But you know what's funny? I love that we went there. And I love that you shared what's coming up for you because here's the deal. What I was thinking as you were sharing, okay, what's coming up for me? And you were thinking, is tech the answer? I began to ask myself the question I ask all of my parents, which is when they began to tell me their story, whatever it is, what's going on for them, where they got it from, I always say, where did you get that from? Who told you? that this wasn't right? What kind of came into your awareness to make you feel adverse about that? You know, and usually it's outside stuff. It's not what's going on for you all the time. It's usually outside stuff. So I think about, you know, the fear mongering that goes around technology, especially with, with kids and, and um, parents now, which is like technology, bad, get, get your kids away from it. As opposed to us saying, well, technology is a part of our lives. So how do we as adults first learn how to manage it ourselves? How do we learn how to be aware, not dismissive of it, but aware of how much we're using? And then how do we then model for our children the same? And I, th I think that you're hitting on something right there. Okay. So we have all this research now that talks about the dopamine effect that technology has on our brains, but that's not the thing. It's not get it away from the kids. It's look at how, what we're modeling for our kids. Are we on our phones all the time? Is that the way that we pacify ourselves? Because if it is, then we're not going to have much luck not giving technology to our kids. I agree. Right? I agree with that. So it, it's, it's this like, Yes, technology has an effect on us. There's a reason that people like Steve Jobs did not let his, his kids on iPads. You know, like like there's people who who use technology who are really in it. They know the effect that this stuff has. We it's this stuff's not really up for debate, but the part of it that is really like the conversation is we can't be <laughs> the duality again. We can't be like in the space of well, I can do it but you can't. Yes. Yes. And I think that's something that's very generational. Like, I think every generation has one of those, well, we're adults and you're a kid. You know, and I feel like our generation, the kids that are coming up now, it's technology. I feel like for me, it was like TV shows when I was growing up. You know, I can watch that, but you can't. When it came to like, you know, rated <laughs> R stuff and, you know, you can go back and back. But I think there's always going to be this idea of the kids, number one, I feel honestly are always going to 
gravitate towards whatever is new a lot quicker than the adults in society will. Once the adults get aware of it, then it becomes kind of our job as stewards of the next generation, not just as parents, but as stewards of the next generation to figure out how do we do this in a way that will get us the next you know, generation or the next era of our existence without it damaging us. Mm. And you know what I'm thinking right now is that it feels pretty effortless for us to raise a generation of non-smokers. Right? 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 Because that's not an addiction that right? we've personally struggled with or they've watched. Right. And right. so... Okay, wait, wait. Hold on. I, I know people that still struggle with that. So I do too. I mean, as, yeah. I'd say generationally. Yeah. Generationally, yeah. I, I yeah. don't want to say that it, it's by all by erased okay. for humans, but I think right. generally we'd say right now uh, the addiction we're passing on to our children is not cigarette smoking, it's technology. Yes. Right. And so... Right. You know, it just kind of speaks to the fact that it's part of these evolutionary models we're talking about and knowing yeah. that within a generation or so, we managed to really change our relationship with that addiction to tobacco. And what will it be like in another generation if we can go in consciously and understand the effects of technology upon us? And obviously, it's a different animal because there's so much good and benefit in technology, and we're not going to erase it. You know what I would even say? I would say, look at, again, I'll, I'll age myself. I'm 31, right? So when I was in high school, I remember music being a huge issue. Music was like, oh my God, music is killing kids. Music is making everybody crazy. And now I feel like we don't have that same issue anymore, right? When you think about generational stuff, as you were just talking about, it was like video games and music and violence on TV are going to destroy our generation. That was my generation. And now we have a whole group of people who are in their thirties going into their forties who are like, yeah, we're good. So it's like, how do we figure out Again, without shaming parents, without shaming the stewards of the next generation, how do we figure out how to say, okay, these are the risks associated with this new technology or with this new, you know, fangled thing, whatever it is. How do we figure that out and then find other ways to have this be in our world without it damaging us? I think that becomes the question. You get the research. It tells us where we are with the risk. And then we use that research to say, hey, how can we help people? Not how can we condemn people? How can we help people <laughs> and create a framework? Right. I'm, I'm I'm laughing because I'm I'm hearing your words and I'm like, oh yeah, it was music videos when I was a kid. Yeah, like MTV was brand new. That was the yeah. best part of babysitting to see if the house had <laughs> MTV. And I watched a Prince video. Ooh. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> they were gonna ruin us. But exactly. um, yeah, so I'm I'm hearing this. What I'd like to do next, Mercedes, is I'd like to dive in a little deeper with you. Okay. Let's do it. Where'd your interest in parent shame come from? Ooh, you did go deep, didn't you? I so, did. <laughs> so I'll be honest with you. It, it's kind of multifaceted, but I'll start with kind of the deeper part of it. And it is my own childhood, my own relationship with the woman who raised me and kind of going through my own healing journey with that we don't talk now. And I talk about that, you know, in my book of how that happened. But I realized that the reason why we were so disconnected was because of the shame that came with who she was to me and how she came about being my mother, because she's not my biological mother. And so in, in our culture, in my culture, especially substance abuse and having to take care, having grandmothers take care of their grandchildren was a huge issue, but it was still a lot of shame going on there. And as I began to heal my relationship with my mom, I realized, and when I say my mom, I'm talking about the woman who raised me, I realized that our disconnect 
came from a lot of things, but mostly it came from her shame of having to take care of a child when all of her biological children were grown and now having to take care of a child of substance abuse, you know, daughter that she had. And I think that that was a really huge turning point for me in my journey. I had already begun this work by the time I had my own healing and and went through that. But when I had my own breakthrough and realized that's what happened with me and my mom, it really started to change the way I saw the parents I was working with. I always had empathy for them, but I really began to look at, I wonder if shame is one of the many things that disconnects a parent from their child. And as I began to explore that, it became this common thread of yes, yes, the more shame I feel, the more disconnected I am from the human who's causing that shame in my life. Mm, so powerful. Thank you for sharing that with yeah. us, Mercedes. Yeah. Mm. You know, I think, I, I think your story also helps ground us. It, it helps us um, root in to just how normal an experience this is and how it really shows up in so many of our lives in so many different ways. Uh Uh I agree. It's interesting. If you don't mind me saying, I think a lot of people who have heard my story have said, have you you ever thought about just working with mothers of narcissistic parents or or women who have narcissistic mothers? And I said, you know, I always say very graciously because I know that there's a huge, you know, kind of population who does that. There's a lot of books about it, but I decided not to go that route because I think that again, the narcissistic mothers, whether they have an actual diagnosis or not, are still contending with what it meant to be a mother in their era, whatever that meant. You know, uh, Marissa talked about the 60s mom. You know, that's a huge pressure You know, yeah. to be that mom or the 70s mom or whatnot. And I'm not saying that I'm not being dismissive of the women who have been harmed by their mothers who cannot love them. But what I chose to do, because I was in that, I'm in that bucket of being harmed by a mother who didn't love you, but I decided to take it the other step because I wanted to do what I've been talking about this whole time, which is create an era of parenting where we're not condemning parents. We're not saying my abuse is your fault, but we're saying, wow, it must really be hard to be a parent without a framework. It must be really hard to raise another human while you're still trying to figure out how to be human yourself. And there's no framework for the latter part of that, right? There's no framework for being a parent. How do we create a new era where there is a framework, which I'll just plug. That's what I want to do in my doctoral dissertation. But, you know, we'll see when I get there. But it's like, I really want us to figure out what is it? What can we have an Erickson's, you know, social development model for parenting? Can we have that? Just so people have this framework of it's okay for me to feel this way with my kid at this age. I'm not abnormal. Oh, gosh, you're so not abnormal. And I think, you know, this this brings me even a little bit deeper. I know you pretty well. And I know that if it's okay that I go here. Yeah, go for it. Okay. I, I know that for you, one of your professional struggling points has been some shame that you have felt in some, some capacity over, you know, you're working with parents, but. Yeah, I'm not one. Yeah. I'm not a parent. No. I'm not. And, you know, my husband and I actually decided this year that we weren't going to be parents because that wasn't something we wanted to do in our marriage and in our relationship. But I think what what I've been able to do through my own shame story of that, like, oh, my God, who am I to be out here helping people, talking to parents? And I don't even have the experience of a parent. I think I'm coming from this point of I am the kid of the parent that I want to help. 
you know, that's the part that I come from. I'm not coming from the expert part. I'm not coming from the LCSW part. I'm coming from the part that I am the kid of the parent that I want to help. It's it's so refreshing because you're not coming from that expert place. You're not coming from the place of, well, this is how I did it. Mm-hmm. Right? You're coming from, this is what it feels like on the other side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's such an opportunity for re-education is the first word that comes to mind because I remember being approached when I had a very small child about, by a parenting coach who was not a parent. And I think she, and I kind of looked at her like, if you haven't walked this journey, how do you know? Well, if she had come to me when I was trying to parent a 13-year-old and could have said, I'm holding the experience of what might be like to be your kid, it would have been a completely different scenario. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. I've been reworking Brene Brown's kind of, it's not her quote, but it's a quote she uses quite a bit, the arena speech, right? And I, and I remember thinking, oh my God, when I first heard that, God, she's right. I need to be in the arena. You know, I'm not in the arena with my parents. And then I realized, yes, I am. <laughs> I am. I'm just in the arena with a different shield and a different armor than they are. So my parents are in the arena with their parenting defense mechanism, with their own understanding of what it means to be a parent. And I'm in the arena with my own defenses of what it means to be the kid of that parent and what it means to want to help them. So I'm in there with them. I'm not above them. I'm not in the bleachers. You know, I'm not judging them. I'm in there fighting right alongside them saying, we're going to get your family where you want it to go. Let's get in there together. And kind of that's how I feel about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. It's funny. I'm just kind of sitting right now with that. I mean, I'm loving, you know, Roosevelt's idea of the arena and how Brene used it so perfectly. Um, Do you have any kind of feeling around the way that so much of parenting seems to be like a struggle of opposing sides? Yes. And (laughs) bring us there a little bit. I've always said this, and I think it's something that might answer this question, which is, as a human on your own, you figure out how to put everything together in a neat little box. Most of us, before you guys became parents, you had it all together. You looked really good on the surface. And what kids do is they come in because they haven't reached that point yet. They're on their way there. They haven't reached that point there. And they're literally pulling everything out of the boxes you've put together. And I think that that's why it's so difficult. You have these little humans who are on the opposite of where you are now. They are in pure humanity, pure authenticness. They haven't learned any of the defense mechanisms yet. They haven't learned any of the societal niceties yet. They're just pure human. And I think that if you are someone who hasn't done your own healing work, that can be really jarring for someone who said, who's tried to live their life as together as they think they should. Wearing all that armor. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah. A kid kid will come in and just like, you know how you have those hang strings on your clothes? A kid will come in and just pull it and unravel your whole shirt. You know, where you are trying to, you'll try to tuck it in and be like, oh, I'm good. Your kid is like, mom, what's this? And just pull it. And you're like, oh God, you're exposing me. Uh, (laughs) I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about the emperor has no clothes, right? And there's so many ways in which, you know, as parents, we're being exposed as emperors that do not have our shit nearly as much together as we think. And the kids are offering those those mirrors by tugging those strings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like when I talk to my parents and I give them this analogy, I say, this is why it's so important to have support and not to be alone and isolative because your kids will do that to you. And if you're alone, you will lash out at your kid. You'll probably even lash out at yourself. But if you have support, 
then you can say, okay, I'm not alone in this. My kid's not the only one who decided to curse in the middle of mass. My kid's not the only one who decided to pee in the middle of the picnic park. You know, like I'm not the only one. And so I wish you you could see my face because you would see the face of a woman who's thinking about the last time her kid peed in an inappropriate place. And she felt really shamed and has not brought the kid or herself back to that place. Um, Especially because it was a place where my child should have been allowed to be a child. Yeah. Ooh, I've got a story there and I got shaking it off, shaking it off. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, I think when you stay by yourself, I've heard so many parents say like, you know, when I give them the permission, if you will, to say, get some help, whatever that looks like. If it's me, great. If it's just a yoga class where you're in a yoga class with other mothers, do that. You know, I talk a lot in my book about how it doesn't always have to be a parenting group, but it can be a place where you get to explore the different pieces of who you are as a human because being a parent is one part of yourself. Yes, it's a huge part and it's an all-consuming part, but it's one part of yourself. And if you continue, if you ignore the parts of you that are creative or the parts of you that are scientific or the parts of you that enjoy fitness and the outdoors, then you're really creating this, this hole for yourself where you don't have any support. You don't have any place to say, I'm doing well. If in your parenting this week, you're not doing well, but you go to your yoga class and you learn that new pose and you do it well, good, celebrate that. Maybe this week is just not your week for parenting. That's okay. There are other parts of your identity that you can really embrace and really love and give some love to. You're talking about integrating all these different parts of you. I am. I'm like jumping around there, but that's something that I'm really, I'm really big on when I talk to my parents about just focusing on themselves as a parent and only looking for wins and losses in that identity only. Mm. It does become really hard. It does become very shaming. If If every day, all I see myself is a broken dad, a horrible mother, it does become really shaming and really isolative. But as you see yourself as a dad, a brother, a business owner, you know, a this, a that, you see all of these different parts of yourself. There are going to be weeks where some of those parts are going to be rocking. Some of those parts you're going to wish you didn't have to be, you know, at that moment. But giving yourself that space to say, I am a full human. I am not just mom. I am not just dad. I am fully human. There are so many other aspects of myself that also deserve praise and also deserve to have me work on them at different intervals of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm wondering if we could turn this reflection around a little bit because we've been talking a lot about the parents. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we could look at society a little bit. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the parents in society, right? So like when when there's that harsh checkpoint where the parent gets shamed, What do you recommend for either people who are witnessing it or for the parent themselves in terms of their response? I think that's a hard one to ask, just like, you know, one for one. I think it is a societal healing that we need. What I've learned, you know, being in the world as a black woman, I've learned that we have this need to label and categorize so quickly. We have this need as a society. We have to put people somewhere. We have to tell them where they are and we have to be able to measure these people. And I think as we were talking about earlier, it's an evolutionary kind of residue, if you will, where that mattered back in the day when we were out hunting and trying to figure out what berries we needed to eat. But I think in today's world, that level of labeling and categorizing, we don't need it as much. We need more fluidity. We need to be able to say, I am human, you are human, and we are both on this human journey together. And so my only prescription would be if you see a parent out in the world doing something that you don't agree with, just to learn how to sit with their own discomfort outside of that child being harmed or hurt. And even if you feel like, okay, this parent is beating the hell out of their kid, 
there are authorities and there are organizations that you can contact to get that child some help. But I would say that if you're sitting there and you don't like that the kid is tantruming or you don't like the mother is, you know, breastfeeding when you think she should be bottle feeding or all the other controversial things people have issues with, I would really just ask you to sit with your own discomfort in that moment. You know, if you have to walk away, if you have to close your eyes, just to be like, okay, why am I so angry that Rebecca decided to breastfeed right now on Target? What's wrong with my issue right now? Before you even begin to take out your phone and take a picture of it, or before you begin to Facebook how horrible this is, just sit with that with your discomfort for a minute and see if this discomfort is something that's solely yours or it's something that you feel needs to be addressed. You know, that makes me think about, I I have a a client I'm helping write a book about being a bystander and bystander behavior and how much responsibility goes into just simply walking around the world and looking around and seeing what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's... Bearing witness. Bearing witness and and understanding the difference between a response and a reaction and Mm. that point of when to speak up and knowing that so often speaking up is is not what you should do. It's very difficult. We're in a, in a culture right now of celebrating activism and taking action and resistance. And I know, you know, that's kind of on a, on a larger political scale. But when those kind of words are out there and we're thinking about what it is to stand up, we have then a different energy that then suggests, no, just watch and witness and protect when we're talking about danger, as you said. There's, there's a, there's a dissonance there. That's kind of a difficult thing to hold both. I'm, I'm, I'm in terms of holding both, Mm -hmm. I'm going back to an earlier interview we did recently with Carrie Nola. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about how we were talking a little bit about the feminine and the masculine, but we were talking about it in terms of doing versus being. Mm -hmm. And as you were just talking, I was thinking, you know, bearing witness is a form of being right? It's a form of like dropping into yourself and activism and, and doing something is, is the doing, right? right? So part of our society is very doing, you know, like yeah. we, we are, we are very much the doers. We are the, I, I'm going to tell you what I think about you. I'm going to tell you what you should be doing differently. I'm going to, and we're afraid not to do that or else we'll be steamrolled by right. someone else's agenda, right? right? There's a lot of fear in that. Yeah. Yeah. My my rule of thumb is this. Most of the time when we're seeing people out in the world, if we don't have a connection with them, standing up to them or, or going up to them is probably going to cause more issue and more dissent than actual change. As someone who, again, is, is clinical, I think about the states of change and how if my defenses are up, I'm not going to go to those states of change at all. It's such an interesting conversation, though, because there there are certainly times and places in today's world where you don't want to not say something. You know, like, like when, if you were to see acts of terror happening or, or racism or like, you know, there's, there's certainly places where you step up. It's, I think for a lot of people, it's becoming really hard to delineate and, and decide like, where do I, where do I keep my mouth shut and where do I say something? But here's the deal. Even in those moments, if I walk up to somebody because I see things happening that are racist or sexist or bad and I say, Hey, this is not Okay. That doesn't always mean that person's going to change at that moment, but I might just be helping the person who is being offended or hurt. But I feel like in the in the instance of a child and a parent, you're probably thinking I'm helping the child. But at the end of the day, that child has to still go home with that parent. 
So that's how I think about it in terms of the parenting relationship. I think if I go up to Rebecca right now and say, Rebecca, I don't like how you're raising your daughter. Like this is just, you should not be doing this. You're not going to stop and say, oh, you're so right. Thank you so much. You're going to say, okay, get you and your kids, get in your car and go home. And now you have to deal with the shame of being exposed that way at home by yourself with the two people who caused that event to happen. So it seems like the difference between intervening in an intimate relationship opposed to say you're watching something, you know, between a, a clerk and a customer at a gas station. Right. Right. I, I hear I hear that. And yet there's also this piece of me, you know, the therapist who sits with grown up adults who are still yeah. working on their childhood shame parts. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it would have been nice to have that other person say something and to Yes. For that child to feel seen, even if there were repercussions once they got home. Yeah. You know, so, so I'm just kind of, I'm holding both. I'm not, I'm not saying that one is right and one is wrong. I'm just holding both that, that sometimes it's hard not to speak up. It's hard not to say something. Yeah. If, if I can kind of just throw in kind of another thing to hold and think about, that's kind of my idea of shame proof parenting though, is this idea that when the world comes at you, however it is, you have enough reserves, you have enough tools to go home and do the reflection that you need. And that's kind of why I talk so much about this idea of being shame proof. It's not about being shame free because I'm not really sure if we can live in a world as other humans and be shame free. But I think we have to really understand that shame plays a huge part in how we respond to our families and to our, to ourselves. And if someone does say to you in the street, they don't like how you're parenting, the way you're doing it is wrong. How do you take that back home with your shame proof tools, with your shame proof framework and say, okay, is this something that I really need to work on? Or is this something that's just about that person and their own discomfort? How can I do that as a parent for myself? Mm -hmm. That's an important distinction to draw. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Mercedes, as, as we kind of land here, because I think this is a really good place for us to kind of land today, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about how our listeners can learn more? I know you have a book coming out. Mm-hmm. So you can pretty much start at my website, which is shameproofparenting.com. And from there, you can access, you know, my book. It's coming out uh, uh, April 25th, which is uh, this month. And I am excited for that. So by the time I'm sure you guys get to my website, it'll be out or you can at least get on the list to know when it comes out. You're not seeing Maurice's face. She just like she just went through like a little whirlwind, like, holy Canoli, the books are already here. <laughs> it yeah. is. It is. That's, that's how I'm feeling as well. I'm like, oh my God, it's actually like, I'm not just talking about it. It's going to be a physical thing. That baby wanted to get birthed. I feel like she came into the world pretty darn quick. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I agree with that 100%. <laughs> um, and then again, from there, you can find my blog stuff, all of my social media is on my website as well. So you can connect with me from pretty much starting out at my website. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It always is. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. We want to thank today's sponsor, Brighter Vision Web Solutions. Brighter Vision is the worldwide leader in custom therapist web design. For only $59 a month, you get a website that is as unique as your practice. You get unlimited tech support, so you never have to deal with those headaches, and complimentary SEO, so your website can be found by your ideal client through a Google search. Please check out the show notes for a special offer for Practice of Being Seen listeners, one month free. It just so happens that today's guest, Mercedes Samudio, 
is a Brighter Vision customer. Here's what she's had to say about her experience with them. What I love most about Brighter Vision is their willingness to work with you each step of the way as you develop a site that truly reflects you and your business. No matter what ideas or vision I have, they've always exceeded my expectations on what they deliver. Find out more and get that special discount offer when you visit our show notes. Please remember, August 13th through 16th of 2017, we're holding our first Practice of Being Seen retreat for therapist healers. It's called Revision. Explore your stories, shape your future. Find more at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. So for more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com and spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio.